Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Getting Technology Right Ethics and Technology Podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish. Get ready for a conversation about global values and technology, diversity and inclusion, discrimination, transparency in data, privacy, and cybersecurity. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, and welcome to Getting Tech Right, the podcast about ethics and technology. My name is Kevin McNish, and with me today is Olivia Gamblin, founder and CEO of Ethical Intelligence, to talk about consulting in technology ethics. So, Olivia, uh, welcome. Could you tell us something a little bit about your background and your interests? Absolutely. And thank you for having me here today, Kevin. I think this is the third podcast we've been on together. So at least hopefully, (laughs) you know, third time's the charm. Hopefully this is just absolutely, (laughs) absolutely stellar. We're going to find out. Um, But yes, to answer, answer your question. So I am an AI ethicist by background. What that means is I am an ethicist that practices in the field of, of artificial intelligence. I like to joke that I am part translator, part therapist, Uh, when I am working in the field, which essentially means I am working as a translator in terms of translating these high-level abstract values into action, um, practical action when it comes to developing uh, and designing AI. And then as the therapist, I (laughs) help in decision support. So I like to stress, especially with clients, that I'm not there to make a decision for you. I am there to support you in making the best decision possible. Uh, but on your own two feet. Hmm. So it's it's a little bit of a mix there. Okay, excellent. So um, yeah, well, I think we're going to get into talking about that that question about making principles real, because that, that's a, a very strong interest of mine as well. Uh, but before that, I think it'd be great if you could just talk a little bit about the general approach to ethics that your company takes, and particularly this notion of uh, ethics as a service, which I, I've seen you know, on your website, and I, I've come across once or twice. It's, it feels like it's a term that's sort of entering the, the general discussion, rather than something that's been around for a while. So could you say what you mean by the term and how you operationalize that? Yeah, absolutely. And I can unpack a little bit more, too, about our specific approach at ethical intelligence. Uh, But I'll start with ethics as a service. Mm. So this term has existed probably about two years now. So it's it's still relatively new. It first came out um, in a paper out of Oxford's AI Ethics Institute. And when I read the paper, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is exactly what we do. It's essentially being able to supply ethical expertise and guidance on demand 24-7 online, which is essentially what we do. How we do that is we have an international network of experts. These are verified professionals and responsible in ethical AI. We were checking the other day, and it is actually the world's largest verified network in this space. Um, We're still pretty young. We've been growing it all word of mouth. So the people that are a part of that network, they come from a wide range of backgrounds. So we have ethicists, we have policymakers, we have technologists, we have um, more and more psychologists, actually, which has been interesting to work with. Uh, So it's quite quite a mix of people. But what we essentially do is when a company, uh, when we engage with, with a client, 
they are either describing to us a very specific problem that they're facing, at which point we match the correct expert team and then guide that the development of whatever solution that is, it's a point solution for a point problem. Or on the other end, we provide the advisory. Um, so we match the company with the best fit advisor uh, while the company still retains access to the entire expert network. So say I'm a startup, I'm working on generative AI, I'll probably be matched with an advisor that has either worked uh, in building generative AI or in using generative AI. And then at the same time, when I have that ethics advisor, say I have a very specific question about uh, bias in in NLP data sets. I don't know what, what the startup is doing and how those are connected at the moment, but it sounds like a cool startup um, or a, a cool company developing this. And I have a very niche question in NLP and bias. Uh, I can still, I can basically say, okay, I, I need an hour with someone with this expertise. We've got that in the network. We can match you and continue on with that advisory. So that on-demand as aspect of all of the wide-ranging um, support needed uh, when it comes to, to engaging in ethics and betting ethics. So that's the ethics as a service part. I like to describe it as well as you hear as a service all the time, like mobility as a service, uh, software as a service, finance, finance as a service. All this really means is, again, that 24-7 access online, being able to um, engage with, with the services being provided. And in this case, the services is ethical expertise in our case. Um, to dive in a little bit more, too, about our, our specific approach when it comes to ethics as a service, we tend to focus more on the operations and strategy of a company. Um, we do work on the technology, but... Honestly, Kevin, nine times out of 10, the root of the problem is not in the technology. It's actually in the governance of it or uh, the team that's built the technology. So we ended up maybe by default going now, we default towards the strategy and operations rather than the technology. Uh, but in the beginning, we were, we were brought in for technical problems and kept ending up over in the governance, uh, governance and, and culture building. Um, so we tend to focus more there. And the last little bit, we've got a, a specific focus on ethics as a tool for innovation. So being able to use something called ethics by design. So designing for our values from the start. So it's not only this risk mit mitigator, making sure we have safeguards uh, in place, but also using it uh, as identifying and emphasizing specific values to get a good return on business impact um, and investment really into your into your AI product that you're building. Mm -hmm. So I think that summarizes it all. <laughs> I think I covered all the <laughs> angles. <laughs> no, great. That, that's that's loads and, and loads to go on. I, I completely uh, endorse what you're saying about um, the issues not being technical. In nine out of 10 cases, it is almost always a cultural issue, which is behind it. And mm -hmm. it, it's something I've been reflecting on recently as the um, in the wake of chat GPT particularly, but over the last year or so, I've seen a lot of jobs coming up for AI ethics leads in companies. And one of the things I find very striking is that the skill set they're looking for is always technically focused. Mm -hmm. um, and so do you find it's an easy transition for a company if they bring you in to look at the technical side and you say, hey, guys, actually, <laughs> this is this is a bigger problem you've got here. You know, you're you're not going to be able to just tweak your algorithm and all of a sudden it's it's going to be fair. Yeah, it depends. It depends. 
um, depends on where in the company we've been brought in, depends on the receptiveness of the people we're talking to, depends on on really whoever our ethics champion is. Mm-hmm. Um, since what we're doing when we go into companies, we're looking for our ethics champions, the people that that truly believe and are motivated to engage uh, in, in embedding ethics. They're the ones that are really making the case internally. Um, so in making that case of, of shifting off of the technology onto mm-hmm. the operations, it honestly depends more on the company's maturity, I'm going to say. So a company that is just starting to engage in responsible AI or ethics, they immediately look at the technology and they're going to get stuck there and they're going to get stuck there and they're going to get stuck there. And it's going to be really frustrating frustrating for everyone involved because any decision made on the technology, if the people in process aren't in place, nothing's going to change. So that's the point in time where they've, you know, a company's been trying a little while to, to fix some of the technical problems. They've got some things in place, but uh, really all they've done is managed to frustrate their programmers and their data scientists because no one can keep anything straight and nothing, no change is happening, or they're just getting more checks put on them without actual uh, any any emphasis on their their natural workflow and how how to work with that. That's the easiest point in time to shift from the technical focus onto the governance focus when there is that frustration. When the company has tried a few things, they aren't seeing the success that they wanted, um, or someone has brought up the case of, I'm frustrated, stop giving me more things to do, this doesn't fit with my workflow. That's when it's a a lot more receptible to say, hey, you've got a bigger issue here. This isn't with the technology, you got a bigger issue here. So. Yeah. Company maturity, I think it boils down to, honestly. Yeah, uh, yeah. again, I would, from my own experience, agree with that. And just thinking that, well, I've been thinking for a while now, since seeing the, these ads with this very heavy focus, that uh, I can imagine in two years' time, that frustration is going to become quite widespread. And it will be yes. very interesting to see how the market shifts around then. Uh, for those of us that believe in that that more expansive, holistic response to, to some of those yeah. problems. So you talked a little bit earlier as well about um, you know, moving from the very high level principles into making those real for people. So, you know, from my yes. own experience, you know, we, we've seen as sort of about over the last four or five years, so many AI ethics codes coming out, um, over 200 of them. Now, they all broadly say the same thing. And I think with, with some people uh, we've spoken to on this podcast, sometimes it yeah, we, we talk about some of the global differences, depending on which community you're talking about. But mm. I think that the thing I'm really interested in chatting about with you is, is how do you make those real? Because obviously you've got things like privacy, where you could say, okay, GDPR or CCPA have to some degree or to a large degree sort of resolve some of those privacy issues. But where it comes to things like fairness or societal mm. impact, those are much harder to regulate a much harder i i would suspect to uh to, to operationalize so no. how do you go about dealing with that so one of the first steps of engagement that we have when it comes to operationalizing those codes of ethics is well this this is going to be a classic philosopher answer we start <laughs> with definitions we love defining terms which sounds ridiculous uh, out of context where you're like, why, what? we don't have to sit around defining fairness. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. You essentially, what we do is we look at these codes of ethics. We will, 
kind of triangulate which values need to be brought in and embedded into the company. So we're looking at uh, global scale, we're looking at industry practices, we're looking at company values to understand, okay, fairness is really important for um, this financial institution. The fairness in financial institutions mm-hmm. are usually um, best friends or worst enemies, depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but what we do then is actually start to step down and go, okay, what products exist, what what models exist, mm-hmm. and what does fairness mean actually for the, this product specifically in action for this model specifically in deployment, it's not. It's not the uh, sit around. Let's let's debate whether fairness is fair, fair fairness of outcome or fairness of um, fairness in um, sorry equal outcome or equal opportunity. Hmm. That's not what I mean in terms of defining fairness. What I mean is there is an algorithm being used to determine credit score, um, credit scoring, and. Uh, risk of defaulting on loans for this uh, specific product. What does fairness look like in that instance? What risk is the instant the financial institution, the bank having to balance with um, being fair towards different demographics that may not necessarily have the traditionally attractive risk scores, mm. so to speak. So in that case, looking at defining what does fairness mean in this instance? In getting that definition, what you're doing is you're actually giving, say, your data scientists that are working on th- that model the ability to have a reference point. So they're no longer sitting there just applying all these different metrics. They're actually able, well, we're able to sit down with them and say, what metrics do you need to now track to be able to to realize that definition of fairness that we have now established. And that definition is based off of regulation. It's based off of value, of company values. It's based off of industry best practices. It's not a simple definition. It's, they're usually quite complex, um, but it, it acts as that North star. And this is, you know, you can do this with any of the, any of the other values. This is just the, the, well, this is an example I'm using, but the first step is always, how do you get that definition down to as detailed as possible um, so that people have the reference point to work off of? Mm, mm, great. Okay. Yeah. So that, that, that I think makes sense of defining, yeah, as you say, your North star where you're aiming for, and then mm-hmm. looking at it in a heavily contextualized scenario and saying, okay, what does it actually look like for this algorithm in this particular circumstance or in this particular marketplace? So yes. yeah, as I say, I think that that certainly makes sense. So what what do you think motivates companies and investors to go out and start to develop responsible AI strategies. I know, I know you deal a lot in the Valley or with, with a fair, fair few people in, in the Valley. And, you know, they obviously have the the now infamous um, phrase of move fast and break things, which I think is yes. probably used a little less now than it once was. But, but nonetheless, the idea about taking stock and trying to develop things ethically yeah, clearly in, in recent weeks, we've had the uh, letter published by various tech um, mm-hmm. leaders saying we need to take a step back and think about the ethics of where AI is going and so on. So is the motivation one of fear of getting it wrong? Is it a desire to actually do good in the world and say we can use AI for really beneficial purposes? What, what is it that's driving companies to come and seek out um, ethics as a service or, or any of your other sort of offerings? Yeah, 
I think uh, right now I could say ChatGPT is scaring everyone, <laughs> and that's that's been a huge motivator for companies. Um, but honestly, Kevin, it kind of starts to break down to who I am talking to. So, for example, like you said, I, I deal a lot in the Valley, and the Valley is comprised of startups and investors, and that ever-going give-take relationship between mm-hmm. the two. When I am working with investors. They are very much working out of a place of fear. Um, they are, I'm primarily talking to them about de-risking their investment. Right. And that's because there has been enough enough problems and enough enough poor mm. investment that it's a very easy case to make to say, okay, if, you, if your startup does not employ, uh, deploy responsible practices and not build slow and, and move responsibly, no, build fast and build responsibly, mm. Like we're, lo- we're still looking at the building responsibly, um, but we can still move fast with it because, you know, investors like speed. But um, <laughs> if a company is not, if your startup or your portfolio companies are not in deploying those responsible practices, you are taking on a significant, I think um, it's looking at a risk indicator. It's something like a 45% increase in risk hmm. that you're taking on for your portfolio. So investors, definitely a place of fear. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to startups, it's a bit of a mix. It kind of depends on the founders um, and it depends on the space that they're operating in. So, and and this also, I should say, this extends beyond startups and extends up into SMEs. Once, once you get back into uh, the large enterprise section, then it's back to risk again. Uh, they always are motivated about uh, not wanting to, to take on too much risk. Um, but when it comes to to startups and SMEs, the smaller end, you've got half that are looking to do good. Um, they are almost intrinsically motivated to ensure that they are are building from the ground up um, on ethical foundations. What usually happens is people that are motivated in this space come from an experience where it they were in a position that did otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, or were were witness to uh, a misuse of technology, and so they saw the impact of it, and they said, "I'm not going to do that." Um, these are people with very, very strong internal uh, moral compasses. Let's say um, they have that motivation to do good, and so they're actively looking for solutions. Then you have the other half that are still operating out of a place of fear, and honestly, that half is is far more driven to engage in ethics because. It is a, a point of, I don't want to screw up and I don't want to to mess everything up. I'm afraid that I'm doing something wrong and I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And it does take a little bit of courage to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I, 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 I'm afraid I'm doing something wrong. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to investigate it. Then you get over that little hump and then then things work better. But um, it definitely, it, it comes from two, two points. Although I have to say the fear base is becoming a lot stronger thanks to onset of generative AI. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's uh, certainly put the wind up a few people uh, for sure. And and I think it's been, uh, yeah, quite quite radically eye-opening for a lot of us the the difference that generative the generative ai has has brought with it and particularly the openness of chat gpt uh that now anyone can go in and use it and 
Yeah, unlike GPT-3 and GPT-4, which are much more controlled, the fact that anybody can just go in and write write me an essay for my university degree or whatever and have it exactly. something that's actually not bad, uh, certainly with a, with a bit of tweaking. No, no. But, so the whole it, world where... Oops, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I grew up in the Silicon Valley. I think I'm... I think people are tired of hearing me say that phrase, but sometimes I have to use it to to preference what I'm saying. Um, I grew up in the Silicon Valley and part of growing up there is we're all used as as guinea pigs. Mm. That area, we are the testers. We are the originating, we are the original data points that companies use to build their technology. And now with ChatGPT, this has been brought onto a global scale where Mm. we are all yeah. inside a giant experiment and we are all the guinea pigs of open ai at this point um so it's a b- yeah. bit of a different scale I, w- I once came across a great quote that engineering was social experimentation on a grand scale without <laughs> any opportunity for most people to give consent <laughs> yeah yeah so this sounds about right i think, I think in this particular yeah. case as you say it's exactly the same it's just yeah in computing um the same thing is happening um, yeah. We're finding in many cases, as has been the case with social media, we're finding out what the problems are as they go. As we're flying the plane, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and everything's exactly. on fire. We're trying That's to figure right. out where the fire is coming from. <laughs> but then nobody would have thought when uh, social media started out that it was going to become a news feed, that it would become a platform for yeah. political opinions in the way that it has and so on. And so I think as, yeah, as the technology changes, as the use changes, then it's not surprising that the ethics are going to um, morph as well, I think, as to what, yeah. what what are the issues and what needs to be facing. Okay, so, so if that's the companies that are sort of coming to you, I have a suspicion that there are probably a lot more that are not, <laughs> um, that just don't see it. So what do you think is the best way of reaching those companies that just don't get it? Uh, so companies that may have very... So, insular policies uh, i'm thinking of companies that uh, are very uh, anti-whistleblowing uh mm-hmm. and then they get caught in the press for doing something embarrassing or whatever else you know that there's clearly a move with a lot of companies to say if we keep our heads down we're not going to be the test cases we're mm-hmm. not going to be the ones to get it wrong so how how to reach those companies do you think well it comes down to pressure and what's going to motivate them so I I guess I could say I advocate for for really a two-prong approach. And this is um, not anything one individual can do on their own, but something that they can contribute to. Uh, one point of pressure is market pressure. We, as people, technology is not something that happens to us. We are agents of control. Uh, we can make decisions on what kind of technology, for the most part, we can make decisions on um, what kind of technology we engage with. And so we can, we can, as a market, push back and say, we're not going to, we're not going to stand for that. Instead of just saying, ah, another data breach, we can push back. So market pressure on one point, and I have to say the younger generations are doing a fantastic job of this, of you call it, you know, voting, um, I think voting with your feet, yeah. uh, where they will, they will choose one platform over another in a highly competitive market based off of their values. So we are seeing the younger generation start to put that pressure onto companies. And then the other direction is actually in procurement. So requiring ethics, due diligence and checks in the procurement process 
that's going to force companies to care enough to actually meet that those due diligence checks. And thankfully, I am seeing and have worked on uh, the due diligence and procurement development around responsible AI, around ethics. So that is an area that is actively being developed. And I guess in this this point, I would stress to the larger companies, especially ones that that are are uh, have um, vast amounts of procurement that they that they undergo. Um, the technology that you are procuring, the software that you are bringing in-house, you need to know the values because those values are now your own, whether you like it or not, or whether you know them or not. And that's why that ethical check in the due diligence process is essential. Mm -hmm. um, so those two points of pressure are really going to make a change because that is really financial pressure, what it's going to mm -hmm. come down to. It's going to come down to that that commercial pressure. Um, I guess as, as an ethicist, also, beyond these two points of, of pressure, as an ethicist, what I'm what I am trying to do is speak very clearly now about how you work with an ethicist. So instead of and recently I've changed a lot of my um, <clears throat> I give a lot of talks and, and and things, a lot of my personal messaging from you should work with an ethicist to here is specifically the kind of questions you will ask your ethicist that you engage with. <laughs> And how that ethicist will help you and what impact will come from working with that ethicist. So being much more concrete instead of just saying you should work with an ethicist. Um, so making it making that that narrative that this isn't something that is kind of cool to have and a couple people have and more of you are behind the curve if you do mm. not have. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And I think that's something which ethics at the best of times can be quite nebulous um and so uh yes to be able to as you say put some concrete on that and make it more more uh firm and clearer for people is, is always going to be helpful um yes. so yeah excellent thanks so i've been distracted because my dog's just come into the room now so oh. you, you can only just see an ear but um yeah anyway perfect distraction <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> Uh, so we, we don't have much time left, but I just wanted to say, uh, do you, is there anything that we've not covered that you'd like to speak about or that we could that you think would be worth discussing? Hmm. There's so many things, Kevin. That's a very hard question. <laughs> I think I could go well, on for days. There's, there's pick, always more pick, to cover. Pick the first one, which leaps into mind then, and we can, we can discuss that for five or five minutes or so. First thing that leaps into mind, um, Oh, I've got a good one. Okay. And this is this is in line with the difference between a technical problem and more mm. of an operational uh, strategic problem. So recently what we did uh, at Ethical Intelligence, we have a quarterly journal, it's called The Equation. And each issue is focused on um, say either one of our issues is on ethics as a service, one is on the business case for ethics, but the most recent one that we just put out was the ethics of generative AI. And part of the research that we were doing for this uh, journal, because we do quite a, a, an in-depth research to figure out what perspectives need to be covered in an issue. Mm. And we dug in and we said, you know, we've got to get some perspective here on the fact that the ethical challenges around generative AI, the majority of them are actually coming from the business case, not the technology again. Mm. Yeah. So when it comes to companies looking at 
incorporating and, and utilizing all of this, this really kind of fascinating new technology of generative AI, how it's being used, that's really going to dictate the success, first of all, the success rate, but also uh, the the ethical challenges that companies are going to have to um, safeguard for or design for in bo- both directions. But just, just the stress there where you can have the same generative uh, let's say large language model, you can have the same large language model applied in two different use cases. And in one use case, it is highly functioning. It's a great tool. Um, the people accessing it are are able to produce uh, higher quality work. And in the other use case, the exact same large language model in a different business use case has now cost someone, say, their life. Mm. And you know, this is the difference between using chat GPT as uh, as a, a way to uh, overcome writer's block when it comes to mm-hmm. uh, producing blogs for, for your company um, versus using chat GPT as a medical device, which it should yeah. not be used for. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's very, very different. And it's the same large language model being used mm-hmm. in both of these cases. And the ethical challenges are not in the technology. They stem from how the technology has been built, but they are actually exist in the business in the business case. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing that came to mind. Yeah, I guess no, excellent. <laughs> so that's a really good point. Absolutely. So the application of it, and of course, that's not to say that the technology is itself morally neutral because it, it still has ethical considerations yes. and concerns around it. But yes, Absolutely. even even when you're sticking with the one technology, be it Bard, be it uh, Chat GPT, or whatever, then. As you say, it can be used for good ends and bad ends, and uh, it could be used for, or, or at least um, negligent ends, shall we say. Yes, good way to put it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Olivia, it's been a real pleasure catching up with you again. Um, so now the next dog has come in. <laughs> <laughs> got a whole party going on there. I do, I do. I think clearly I should have fed them earlier before, before the podcast, but never mind. <laughs> Uh, it's oh, been a pleasure again catching up with you. Uh, great to see you again, and uh, hopefully it won't be too long before we see you once more. You as well, Kevin, and thank you so much. And yes, hopefully I will see you soon for episode four of whatever podcast we end up on together. <laughs> that would be great. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Getting Technology Right ethics and technology podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit itspmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.